1947, uh, just 75 years ago, perhaps the most important archaeological discovery in our time period has begun. On the edge of the Jordan Rift, Bedouin shepherds searching for grazing for their sheep stumbled upon a series of caves in the wilderness just to the west of the Dead Sea near the site of Kirbet Qumran. Spread throughout these caves were sealed clay pots and multitudes of ancient scrolls that would forever change the course of biblical scholarship. Today, we know these ancient scrolls as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they are hugely important for understanding the Bible. Nearly every book of the Hebrew Bible is represented within the manuscripts found in these 11 caves, and some of the manuscripts were found whole and complete, ser- and complete copies of the Old Testament books, such as the Great Isaiah Scroll that can be found in the Israel Museum today in Jerusalem. In most cases, however, the manuscripts were fragmentary, and scholars pieced them together to eventually identify the texts from 38 or 39, uh, 38 of the 39 Old Testament books. All of these texts were dated between the 4th and the 1st centuries BC by studying the paleography or the writing style and penmanship of the writers. This means that they predated the oldest surviving biblical manuscripts known at that time, the Leningrad Codex and the Aleppo Codex, by nearly 1,000 years. Prior to this discovery, critics of the Bible claimed that the stories of the Bible uh, that it contained, that they were uh, thrown together and allowed to grow in legend over time, that they weren't actually the words of God. But the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls refuted this unfounded claim, as the Hebrew text found in and around Qumran clearly showed that the text was statically copied and remained consistent for centuries and even millennia. Basically, this means that what we have today that our English translations have translated is essentially the same thing that the people had several centuries before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem. It has not changed, and that is hugely important. What the Bible says is what God says. That's why we call it the Word of God. But the Dead Sea Scrolls weren't all uh, just biblical texts. In fact, only about 40% of the, of the content found back in the 40s and 50s were copied scrolls of Scripture. The rest were commentaries on scripture, community guidelines to live rightly, and apocryphal literature. All of these other texts, though not biblical or canonical, give great insight into into what Second Temple Jews understood and thought about the Bible. It also shows what they anticipated about the future based on important predictive prophecies of the Old Testament. One specific passage was keyed in on many in, in many different manuscripts. It is a peculiar but noteworthy passage where the God of Israel, Yahweh, uses a pagan and false prophet to announce the future hope of God's chosen people. This passage is in the book of Numbers and had a huge effect on the community as they eagerly awaited a specific foretold individual to come and change the world. We're going to study that today. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. And I'll give us a little context while you're turning there, leading up to where this passage falls in the history of this special nation called Israel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the opening of the Bible in the first book, Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 1. God created everything to be good, and it was good. God dwelled among the man and the woman in the perfect garden of Eden with no sin to separate them. 
That all changed, however, in Genesis chapter 3, when the man and woman both chose to rebel against the authority of their creator in disobedience. Their punishment is immediate spiritual death, being unable to clear their record and be accepted by their maker. They also now have to deal with the physical pains and eventual physical death because of their new status as imperfect creatures. From that time on, sin separated man and God, but God put the plan in motion in Genesis chapter 12 to choose one man out of all those on earth which, from which he would create a new nation. A nation that would be blessed by God and would mediate the blessing from God to the rest of the world. They were to function in this role from their own land, which God would give them, but not immediately. First, the descendants of this man, Abraham, would need to go to a different land for 400 years before God would finally bring, call them and bring them back. This promise was a promise. God said it would happen, and he's the only one that could make it happen. The promise was made first to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, then to his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and finally to his son Jacob, who God renames Israel in Genesis chapter 28 and Genesis 46, right before the growing family moves to the land of Egypt. The family of Israel multiplies greatly in the land of Egypt over the course of four centuries, but because of their strength, they are made to be slaves to the Egyptians. They're greatly oppressed uh, to the point that they cry out to God uh, for him to remember his promise to them. And God does. He sends the man Moses to be his prophet and miracle worker. Uh, he sends him to Pharaoh to bring the people out of Egypt to the land promised to Abraham before, centuries before. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, refuses until God multiplies many miracles and plagues to finally bring the people of Israel out of their sojourning to a specific mountain along the way. At that mountain, in Exodus chapter 19, God sets himself up to be king over the people, and he creates from them a new nation, ruled and governed by God's law based around what we know as the Ten Commandments. This new nation of Israel is not to be like all the other nations of the world, but it is to be set apart and different, reflecting the character of the actual creator God while mediating blessing and prospering to the rest of the world. God takes them from this mountain to the border of the promised land. But the people rebel against him because they fear the wicked and mighty people that God had promised that they would soundly defeat. This causes God to punish the rebellious Exodus generation with death over the course of 40 years in the wilderness until the new faithful generation is ready to follow wholeheartedly. The change can clearly be seen in Numbers chapter 21 as the new generation trusts in Yahweh and defeats two mighty Amorite kings east of the Jordan River and prepare to enter into the land of conquest to receive the inheritance that God had continually announced that he would give them. And that's where we're going to pick up this story today in Numbers chapter 22 as the Moabite king, who had just witnessed his conquerors, the Amorites, be completely destroyed by Yahweh's nation, not knowing what else to do about the strength of this people, that were being ruled by a marvelous God, the king seeks out a pagan prophet to call down curses on Israel in order to protect himself. Balaam, the pagan prophet, the renowned seer from several hundred miles away, is called to the land of Moab to announce the downfall of Israel, which would result in him being set up financially for life. The problem is, it isn't up to him. The journey doesn't go the way that he hopes. 
Let's pick it up in Numbers chapter 22 and verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you in this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men. But speak only the word that I tell you. As Balaam is on his way, God shows him who is in charge. This brings us to our first point for today, that God is in control. God is in control. Here comes Balaam, ready to curse Israel, but God uses this opportunity to show the pagan prophet who is really in charge. This so-called seer had no idea what God is really doing until God reveals it to him. Even the donkey knows. Even the donkey can see. Now, this is the part of the story that people hear about as kids and know. And most of the time, it's the only part that they know. Unfortunately, this isn't the main part of the story. It's just the lead-up. As Balaam gets in position on top of a high overlook to do what he has always done, looking for specific things in the organs of sacrificed animals— He's instead stopped in his tracks to say what God says about Israel. And what does God say? Let's see it here in Numbers chapter 23, verses 8 through 10. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. As Balaam sees Israel, God announces the covenants that he has made with this people. 
Verse 10 remembers how God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be like the dust of the earth. This is what it says here. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And then in verse 9, it shows how the people have become a holy nation, one set apart not like all the other nations as God had commanded them with the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, one that's set apart, not counting themselves as one of the other nations. And that brings us to our second point for today. God remembers his word. God remembers his word. God never fails to do what he has said. He has shown Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab, that he cares for his covenant people and will make sure to bless them and not curse. And that continues as they go to a new overlook for Balaam to try to curse the people from another place. Balaam looks for these omens again, these signs in these organs of the animals, but God instead puts a word in his mouth and it shows God's character. Let's look then at Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. And that's where we see the third point for today, that God keeps his word. First, we saw that God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. Then we saw how God remembers his word. He knows what he has said in the past. And here we see that God keeps his word. He's not a man that he should change or change his mind. That does not happen. God remembers and he keeps his word. And this is so important for us to understand. God had chosen Israel out of all the people of the world to bring blessing to all. He didn't just do it out of impulse, but it was a plan all along, and it was fully thought out. Even if there are speed bumps along the way when it comes to Israel's obedience or disobedience, God always keeps his word. What he says goes. What he announces will come to pass. And that is what's so exciting. But with the high point of this passage, the prophecies from the third place that Balaam goes. Let's look at Numbers chapter 24, and I'll start reading in verse number one. When Balaam saw it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as other times, to look for omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Let's just stop right there for a minute. This is the intro to what God says. Balaam is remembering the event on the road in chapter 22 
where his eye has been opened, what it says here in verse 3, where he hears God speak audibly, where he sees the Almighty in the road and falls down to worship. And now here is God's message. Verse 5, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. He's talking about the nation as a whole. But notice the switch here as we get into verses 7 and 8. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces, and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. The focus is now on an individual. If you're following along in the NIV translation, the translators on that committee attempted to make the pronouns and referent the same all throughout the passage. Unfortunately, though, that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew makes it very clear that the focus shifts here to the, at the end to a prophecy not just about the nation as a whole, but to a singular individual. And that is very important. I think in verse 7 here, I think the NIV missed the point. We see here that the focus is on a king. And lock that away because it's going to be very important here coming up very soon. Verse 8 then is going to be a key one that we study next week as God brings him out of Egypt. This is the passage that Matthew is referring to in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15 uh, talks about this in reference to Jesus as a baby, escaping the rage of Herod by fleeing to and then coming back from Egypt. Uh, this is what it says here. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, I don't want to get lost in that too much now, so hang on for that next week. We'll get to it then. But anyway, after Balaam announces what God is saying about this future of Israel and the future king of Israel specifically, the king of Moab is very upset, as you might imagine. It's not a surprise because Balaam did not do the job that he was hired to do very well. He did, however, announce what God had chosen to announce, and he did so again one last time in verse 15. He has one more message from God about what he calls the latter days. So let's look at it there in Numbers chapter 24, verses 15 through 17. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. All right, we'll pause here again. This is very similar to the introduction that we saw in the previous pro prophecy, but there's one thing that's added. And there's one thing that's very important that we understand why it's added here. He adds, now he knows the knowledge of the Most High. He knows the knowledge of the Most High. But what's that in reference to? 
I think pretty clearly this is a reference to the future nature of this prophecy. This isn't just a present day blessing for the people that Balaam sees down in the Jordan Rift. This is something for them to know about their own future in the latter days. This is what God says in Isaiah chapter 41 and following that separates him from any kind of idol or false god or even demon. A demon may know the present and they probably know the past, but they have no idea what the future holds unless they hear it from Yahweh. Only he knows the future and he does the future. I know that might not make too much sense grammatically, but follow along with me here. Our fourth point is that God knows and does the future. Now hang with me so I can unpack this. He knows and he does the future. These aren't guesses. These aren't just predictions of what may come to pass. They are the truth. They are revealed for our benefit. They are what build anticipation and hope. And that is exactly why that community that buried the Dead Sea Scrolls cared so much about this very next verse. We have the lead up, and now here is the climax. I've put it up here on the screen for you. Let's go ahead and read it there. In verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. But why is this so important? Why have people for for multiple millennia treasured and pondered these words? This is obviously a continuation of the king described in the previous prophecy that we saw earlier on there in chapter 24, but it's more to it than just that. So let's dig into it here. Let's unpack what's going on. In Hebrew, this this literary format is called parallelism, which is essentially a balancing of the lines to aid memory. This is something that is supposed to be remembered. More specifically, this is an example of synonymous parallelism, where the aspects in the connected verses are meant to be synonyms of each other. Here, uh, you can see those aspects in their verses. They're underlined here for you. But the the amazing thing happens right in the middle. On first glance, the first aspects in these connected verses are not synonymous. They don't seem to be interchangeable or even similar. A star in this culture is always referring to deity. It's always representing God. On the other hand, though, The scepter in the second line represents a human, specifically a ruler, a king. These are fundamentally different concepts, but placed in a way in the Hebrew to to tie them together as synonyms, as interchangeable for each other. Now, maybe you've already jumped ahead and you've connected the dots before I get there. But if not, let me help you connect them Here, this is amazing. God, through Balaam, is announcing an important truth about the future. In the latter days, it won't just be God. It won't just be a human king. What God is revealing here is that these are one and the same. I think those at Qumran had trouble making sense of this, 
But how blessed are we to see what was declared more than 1,400 years before it happened. The star and the scepter is the God-man, Jesus Christ. This king that would come out of Israel and be more powerful than all in all the other nations. Fully God and fully man, Jesus came out of and to the nation of Israel to offer himself as their king. Fulfilling this prophecy 1,400 years after it was declared by God through an obstinate and pagan prophet, Jesus came onto the scene to a people anticipating the fulfillment of this prophecy. That's actually the true origin, if you're wondering, of that symbol that we call the Star of David. That was created and stamped and drawn and uh, put together in so many different areas before David was even born. It was the, anticipated, the anticipation of this star prophecy that would come. That's the origin of what we call the Star of David. Israel took this passage as a messianic prophecy about the coming king who would bring Israel back to the forefront, to bring them back to power. The problem was, when Jesus came, Israel wanted the king, but they didn't want to accept everything else that he commanded. Jesus didn't just offer a physical kingdom, although he did. He also required repentance and turning from sin. And that's where the people balked. They rejected him as king under those circumstances, and so he went to the cross instead and delayed the start of his rule. Jesus instituted a new covenant that was different than Moses's. He paid the price for sin and died on the cross, signing the covenant with his blood. Jesus died and rose again to life and then ascended into heaven. In doing so, he sent the Holy Spirit to bestow the spiritual blessings of this new covenant now for all who would believe in him. This expanded beyond just the scope of Israel, but as Gentile believers, they were now given the Holy Spirit as well. And Jesus is now with the Father in heaven waiting to come back to fulfill all the promises of God, including the physical ones. Remember, God remembers his word. And he keeps his word. He knows and does the future. He is in control. So let me ask you, where then is hope? Are you savoring being in charge of your own life and your own choices? Are you seeking to control your circumstances to find happiness and contentment? That's the natural thing to do, but it's also the wrong thing to do. That hope isn't guaranteed to succeed. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Hope in yourself will always fail. There is no exception. It always fails. But not so with God. Even in trials, actually especially in trials and suffering, we have hope in God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame, but because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. It is the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance of eternal life, reigning alongside the Father and the Son in their physical kingdom that will one day come to earth. Going through life on your own will fail. We all sin and are all going to be judged. 
God has declared that about our future, so we know that it will come to pass. What will you have to say before the throne? If you have your hope in yourself, that you did more good things than bad things, that defense is going to fail. That's not how it works. Even one sin separates you eternally from God, and there's no counterbalancing of good things that you do. There's no way for you to remove your sins either. It can't be done. So is that where you've placed your hope? I hope not. The object of our hope must be in the God King who came and took our punishment on himself. Jesus died the death that we deserved. And it didn't just end there. He proved what it accomplished by his resurrection from the dead. And he declared that only reliance upon him to deal with your sin will accomplish anything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9. What a promise. Do you see the connection here? God is in control. God remembers his word. God keeps his word. God knows the future and he does the future. The one who can make such an impossible prophecy 1,400 years before he makes it come true. He knows the future and he does the future. He has declared it. It will come to pass. So where is your hope? What is your anticipation? My prayer is that your hope, if it isn't already, would be placed exclusively in the star and in the scepter. Jesus is our hope. He is our only hope. What a mighty God we serve. Put your trust in him today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know you from you. We're so thankful that you are in control, that you reveal your word and you remember it. And God, we're so thankful that you not only know your promises, but you are capable of fulfilling them and promise to fulfill them. You're the only one that knows the future. You're the only one that can do the future, that can make it happen. There's so many things that you declare in your word, Lord, that I pray we would get into our hearts, that we would take that stewardship responsibility very seriously, that we would know your word, what you have declared about the future, that we would have our hope in you to come and fulfill your promises. When Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled so many things, but there's so many more yet to come in his second coming, Lord. And we eagerly anticipate the day when you make it happen, when you bring it to be, when it comes to pass. Lord, I pray that our trust would be in you, that we would seek to understand who you are, that we would seek to follow you, and that we would seek to have our rest in you, in the hope that you have declared. God, we're so excited to see how you fulfill all that you have promised. And we pray that it happens soon. We eagerly await for you. Thank you for being a great God. 
Thank you for being a great king. May our lives line up with what you declare, with what you command. We love you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.